in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the CEO Raider Podcast with your host, John Mayetta. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you can consume your podcast content. Sort of a busy week. Weekend in private equity. A couple of deals got announced, which makes sense over this kind of semi-long long weekend where a number of firms have uh, the observation of Veterans Day off. Athena Health, it was reported that they've agreed to a deal to be acquired by Elliott and by Veritas, two PE firms. Veritas has a couple of healthcare IT assets that I believe they just merged into one in their portfolio. And so I don't know if the thought is to stuff Athena into that, into those uh, two merged assets and create one healthcare IT company or to run it separately. And I don't think there's a lot of demand for Athena. I think there's value into what they create. I looked at it in 2010. The company's changed a little bit since then. They've had a number of acquisitions. But I think there's real value there. I think they're undercapitalized. And I think that's the issue. And even now, owned by private equity, I still believe they're undercapitalized. I think that would have been an asset better served finding a home inside of a company like Oracle that really wanted to push on healthcare IT as a vertical. Uh, the other one was was Aptio, A-P-T-I. And Aptio agreed to be acquired by Vista Equity for approximately $2 billion. I think Vista also kicked the tires on, on Athena, more than a cursory look. I think the question is just, how high can you get margins in that business to service the debt? Vista's decent size. They're highly active, probably the most active in software in terms of PE firms, followed by Tomo Bravo. But they're not enormous. They're not TPG. And given Athena's business model, you can't just go in there and cut heads and get margins up that way. It's more a function of the model as to why they don't have EBITDA margins that are 20%, 30%, 40%. All right, but that's enough about it. Now, before I get off the topic on, on M&A, I don't recall if I mentioned IBM's deal that was announced a couple of weeks ago to acquire Red Hat for $30 plus billion which I think was a 70% premium. IBM does not know how to do deals. And even if the deal was competitive, to pay a 70% premium for that business in that space, IBM is going to use Red Hat to help chase Amazon, specifically Amazon's AWS business, and to chase Microsoft with their Azure business. The cloud game is over. Acquiring Red Hat is not going to help you make up the gap. You're not going to be any more competitive in cloud. What they ought to do, as I've said for several years, is IBM ought to acquire a number of companies in the infrastructure services space. My old company, Solera, Verisk, V-R-S-K, um, IHS, which is I-N-F-O, uh, Experian. There are a number of smaller companies in that space. But the, you'd, you'd get two things with info services acquisitions. You get They would be margin accretive. A lot of these things have margins between... 30 and 45% EBITDA margins. And you could get margins even higher once they're inside of IBM. So they'd be margin accretive. They'd provide you a source of recurring revenue, which IBM needs. In my opinion, they're still too heavily weighted toward consulting revenue with IBM Global Services. And they would give you a data set or data sets to push through Watson. So you could apply Watson's advanced analytics to acquire data sets and create new products across different industries, the industries that these information services firms sit in. A number of these information services companies are 
larger. You know, they have market caps, let's say between five and twenty billion, whether they're public or private. You know, if the number of these things are private, but if you apply to a multiple to them, come out somewhere between five and twenty. So they're decent size. But even at those sizes, and speaking from experience as a former insider, you can't just throw capital around. Even if you you're throwing off three or four hundred million of free cash flow a year, you still have to be disciplined with how you use your your capital. But when you have a hundred plus billion market cap, uh, you have a little bit more flexibility. Not that you should be any less any less disciplined into into how you allocate your capital, but in absolute dollar terms, X percent of anything, when you have the, the, the market cap and the type of cash flow that IBM has, is a much larger absolute number than it is in a company with a market cap between $5 billion and $20 billion. So I think it's a, it's a missed opportunity. I think you have the wrong CEO inside of IBM. I think IBM is a company, I usually, I'm going to go against, against my own grain here. I usually advocate for in technology, have a a disruptor, a technology-centric type of a CEO in the chair to make sure the, the platform stays fresh. I think Ginny Rometty, is, is, who is CEO of IBM, uh, she has an engineering background. I think she understands technology. I don't think she understands how to productize it so well. And I think this is a case where the CEO needs to be less of an innovator at IBM, and IBM should have a CEO that's more of a, a finance person, more of a corporate development person, somebody that knows how to balance organic growth with acquisitions, and in this case, somebody that's more focused on acquisitions. If you look at Bill Stone over at SS&C Technologies, that type of a CEO, where the space is mature, if we're talking about fintech for a moment, and there's a, a, a number of assets that are uh, available for acquisition that could make the, the portfolio stronger. And that's the playbook uh, Bill Stone and SS&C have run since I've known that company, which is, I guess, going back to 2009, 2010. They've rolled up that, that space for the most part. There aren't too many independent vendors left. And I think that's the playbook that IBM needs to run. And this, this sort of gets back to my thesis around CEOs in that CEOs have more than uh, a fiduciary op obligation to their investors. I would argue they have a, a moral obligation to do what's best for the company at all times, that you're effectively married to the company, that you are thinking about the company 24 by 7 by 365, uh, particularly when the company is publicly traded or has outside capital, so if it's, if it's PE-backed. You owe it to your shareholders, you owe it to your customers, you owe it to your employees. Every waking moment, you've got to be thinking about that company and, and how do we make it better, what's best for the company, whatever that may mean. There is no off. There is no off switch. You're always on. And the difference in, in being a CEO versus running a, being a part of a... Of a investment banking practice or a private equity practice where it's more transaction driven you get to be a little bit strategic particularly when it's a company like ibm that's not going to go bankrupt overnight you don't have to worry about payroll you don't have to worry about the next deal it can be a little bit more strategic you can pick your shots it's not a transaction driven business model to a degree you have to generate revenue
IBM, their, um, their business model is not entirely recurring revenue. And even if you had a business model that's retire- entirely recurring revenue, you still have to generate new sales activity, new bookings to drive the top line. It's just that the, the, the quarter doesn't live and die on new bookings activity per se. But you have an obligation. The best CEOs aren't just concerned with making the numbers. They're, they're concerned with what's going to drive customer value. Because at the end of the day, of the vendors in a particular space, the vendor that provides the most value is going to be the one that creates distance between it and its competitors. And over time, that distance not only will manifest itself in the marketplace and manifest itself in the way of uh, revenues and margins, but in the stock, obviously. If you want an example, and I'll wrap up with this, here's an old-fashioned one. So for people who kind of grew up with software in the 80s and 90s, look at ANSYS, and the ticker symbol is A-N-S-S. And then look at its comps. And it had one of the most driven and intelligent CEOs I've ever met for I don't know how many years. I want to say somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Jim Cashman. And look at ANSYS versus the pair group. They were all playing in the same space, but ANSYS consistently outperformed over time. And it all starts with the person at the top. It sets, sets the tone, sets the culture, sets the expectations. You know, sometimes investors tell me, oh, you know, the CEO, it doesn't matter so much, particularly in larger companies. Ansys, by the way, isn't a, a larger company. They're, I think they're large cap today, but when I first got to know them, they were small cap. But even in larger companies, it matters. Look at Microsoft with under Steve Ballmer and then under Satya Nadella. Look at its market cap. Completely different strategy. One guy didn't partner at all. Balmer, and one guy has become much more friendly and has embraced the strategy of co And look at the difference it's made in, in Microsoft. That's all for now. See you next time.